Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On this week's episode, I'm excited to welcome a guest who once legendarily went toe-to-toe with one of horror's most iconic slashers, and all before he was a teenager. The star of Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers, he also has had a celebrated career on the stage, including roles in the original Broadway productions of Falsettos and Les Mis. An accomplished actor and performer, please welcome to the show, Jeffrey Landman. It's nice to be here. I'm so glad to have you here, and in the month of October, it's in, your time. It's a very good month for me. <laughs> Well, uh, there's a lot to dig into, including the fact that you just attended the Halloween 40th anniversary convention, which I want to get into in a second. Sure. Uh, but I would like to start the show the same way I start every show, with the same first question that I ask every guest, and it is simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Why is horror personal to you? Why do you think the genre appeals to people? You can take it personal. You can take it broad. But why horror? Okay. For me, I lucked into it. I landed in this horror movie. I was 10 years old. In fact, my first audition was on my 11th birthday, and I was appearing in Les Mis on Broadway at the time and just had an audition like any other audition. Mm -hmm. I think I had three auditions total, and then two weeks later, I was in Salt Lake City doing prep work to film a horror movie. For me, I being so young, I wasn't really a horror fan. It was just another audition. And now in hindsight, I... Having realized how big the genre is and how important it is to so many millions of people, I feel so honored to be a part of it, specifically to be a part of the Halloween franchise, which I was just saying to someone the other day, you know, we're 11 movies in. Right. And this new one is primed to be the biggest one ever. It looks amazing. I can't wait to see it. And, you know, what other franchise in any genre can say they've lasted 40 years and are having one of the biggest moments of its lifespan? So for me, that's my connection to horror. I'm not a huge fan of the horror franchise. I've recently been going back and watching. I watched all the Nightmare on Elm Streets. I watched all the um, I'm going through the Friday the 13th right now and just sort of catching up on what I missed as a child. Um, I'm a very big fan of the classic horrors mm-hmm. sort of or what I consider a classic at my age of I, I think Carrie and The Exorcist and that sort of movie is my kind of good scare. I like a good thrill scare. I know that there are a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of people that love the blood and gore. That's not really my thing. And I love that Halloween 5 doesn't really have that much blood and gore. In fact, the franchise itself is sort of known for not having as much blood and gore as the other franchises do. Right. But I think people love the genre so much because everyone loves a good scare. It's the same reason people ride roller coasters and, you know, you watch scary things because it makes your heart run a little faster for a few moments from the safety of it's just a movie. Right. And I think there's there's uh, a measure of a release there, too. Very much so. And in a in a tumultuous world, uh, when we can control our fear instead of letting it control us, there's something kind of great about that. Yeah. You can just turn on the lights. You can turn off the movie and turn on the lights and, and go back to quote unquote normal. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> which is not really normal anymore. What even is reality? <laughs> uh, so you hit upon something that I think is is interesting and I wanted to talk to you about is you came to this franchise that by part five, obviously there are five movies. It's mm-hmm. made its claim. It's an iconic moment in film history. Uh, but when you're 10 years old, that's something that probably just kind of like is on the periphery. You don't even really know yet. 
And on, on top of that, the one of the things I love about the Halloween movies specifically, and this was sort of going on during number five, is that unlike some of the other franchises, we we are constantly reinventing ourselves. Right. So you had one and two. Then you had three that went off on a tangent. Mm-hmm. Then four and five brought it back. Then six took it somewhere else. Seven and eight took it somewhere else. Then you had remakes. And now... I don't even know what we're calling the new movie. I know it's a sequel to the original, but are we calling it a remake of the se- I don't know, but we have the new movie. So there's actually, someone did a chart of all the different timelines in the Halloween franchise, and I think there's six different timelines. It's, and I think that helps keep everything refreshed, and it keeps the fan base involved. Well, it truly keeps the fan base involved. I was thinking about this on my drive here this morning to talk to you. It's probably the only horror franchise, in a way, that is choose your own adventure. Like you, very much. You start with seventy eight Halloween, and then you can choose to do like just Halloween one and two because it's one night. Mm-hmm. Halloween one two H two O trilogy. Halloween Halloween three. Halloween one two four five six. Or you know, mm-hmm. it just Halloween or Halloween twenty eighteen. It's however you want to take that journey. And I love, I haven't seen the new movie yet. People that have have said it's wonderful. Um, But I love that at least in the trailer, you know, they're sort of ignoring everything else that's ever happened between Halloween 1 and now. But they do say, I heard that's her brother. And they just say, no, that's a rumor. So they at least acknowledge that they're just treating everything else that happened as fake. Right. Not real new. Not real news. I didn't (laughs) even say that. Wow. (laughs) Getting in trouble here. Not real. Um fact in the world of the the mythology of the the Halloween world anymore but at least they're acknowledging that in one alternate universe it happened which I love that and I've heard there's a lot of wonderful easter eggs for the fans of throwbacks to the other movies and little acknowledgements that you got to look for but for me you know when I first booked the movie I had no idea of anything I was 10 years old I didn't know and my mother and I decided to watch the most recent Halloween, which at the time was Halloween 3. So I had no idea what was going on when I started filming Halloween 5. And then when I arrived in Salt Lake City, Danielle Harris had a copy of number 4. So I watched it. I was like, okay, now it's sort of making sense as to what's going on here. So, so you were on Broadway and you go and audition. And by your own admission, you didn't really have engagement with the genre up until this point. Not at all. So despite your mom and you watching three, which as you pointed out is a wildly divergent <laughs> story from, from the rest of the franchise. Uh, do you recall having that moment where you realized, Oh, this is a thing. Like this is like more than just a gig that I'm doing. For me, that realization didn't really come until the, until the movie was out. Or until I saw the, I remember the first clip I saw was on Movie Line. Does anyone else remember Movie Line? It it warped later that year into what we now know as E. Oh. But at the time it was Movie Line, and it was just a network of twenty four seven movie trailers and little clips. Like they had VJs for lack of a better word that would like introduce, you know, here's the world premiere of the Halloween Five trailer and things like that. And they had a clip and they were they were promoing it. And that was sort of our first idea of like this is a thing. Like people are waiting to see the first moments this is bizarre it's crazy and it just so happened that the first scene they ever showed was the car chase sequence which was my big moment in the movie so that was the first thing i saw on the on my own tv at home and that was sort of this moment of this is way bigger than i realized and then when i saw the marquee go up at my local movie theater that they were going to be showing it 
it just all sort of happened very quickly, my realization of how big the movie was. Part of that was because I was based in New York at the time, I didn't get to go to the premiere. I didn't get to go to, you know, I didn't do any ADR work. I didn't do anything. Once I left filming and we were in Salt Lake filming, it didn't feel Hollywood to me. It didn't feel like a, as huge a deal as it was. But to a 10-year-old, being on Broadway didn't seem as big a deal as it was at right. the time. And it was a great education in, you know, how this teeny little movie means, would mean, and would go on to mean so much to so many millions of people. And I'm so grateful that I was sort of away from that until it was a finished product. Right, because I think there's something to be said about engaging with it on your own terms, because Mm -hmm. you got to discover... It in a way that not everybody probably gets to come to the franchise. You're, mm-hmm. you're a working actor, you take this role, and then because, like you said, you're removed from it, it's like, you know, you fin- this happens a lot. You finish a job and you move on to the next mm-hmm. thing, and then you realize, like, oh, oh that God. mattered. Yeah, this is huge. <laughs> uh, so, and now, like, fast forward, I mentioned this to the top of the show, this last weekend, as of the time of this recording, you were just in Pasadena for Halloween 40, which celebrated 40 years of Halloween. Mm-hmm. Uh that's got to be surreal. I mean, to be part of this this behemoth in a way, like you mentioned, kind of the the the, the fan freight train that's moving ahead for the new movie. It, to me, it's like it's Star Wars for horror fans, like that level of intense. It really <laughs> yes. is. And I didn't know until I did my first con about fifteen years ago. I and again, I was sort of I was in New York. I was sort of away from everything, mm-hmm. and and the internet wasn't what it was now. And you know, so fifteen years ago, I did my first con and. They reached out to me and were flipping out that I responded, that like they got to me through my agent and that I was even interested. It was like mind boggling to them. And to me, it was like there are people that want to meet me and through doing cons and just engaging with fans, I've learned how big this franchise really is and how passionate people are about it. They say that it's general sci-fi but specifically like star wars star trek and then horror in terms of like what people are passionate about i'm sure now since then harry potter has we you know and and uh, lord of the rings but the horror fans are insanely passionate about these about these movies and i'm so grateful that i like i said i lucked out i just as easily could have ended up that my first big movie was a rom-com like right for me it was just roll of the dice that i ended up in a horror movie and now you know every day i'm grateful that i stumbled into this amazing community that is so passionate and that is so lovely too that's the other thing all the fans i've dealt with everyone i've i've met is just you know, lovely and, you know, respectful. I haven't had any bad dealings with anyone. And it's just been a great ride since I started doing cons. Well, and it's so interesting because, of course, you know, we're talking about how you just participated in Halloween 40, which, of course, marks the 40th anniversary of the first film in 1978. Mm -hmm. But we're just one year shy of the 30th anniversary of your movie. Mm -hmm. And so when you... Which blows my mind. I was going to (laughs) ask. 30 years. Because, you know, I'm sure, and this is something I'm very fascinated by, is the idea that 
no one really thinks, I'm sure, that like something they did when they were 10 years old is something they're still going to be talking about Mm -hmm. 10 years later, 20 years later, 30 years later. That's got to be both surreal and gratifying in the same measure. That's the the best description. It's surreal and, and gratifying and heartwarming. And, you know, at the con this weekend, they had there were five of us, I think, from Halloween five. And they're people I see every couple of years at cons or, you know, every once in a while on Facebook will, you know, be tagged in something or something will come up. Right. Um, And I remember looking across at them and being like, I never would have thought 30 years ago that these people would still be in my life 30 years later that we would. They were sort of floored to look at me and be like, wow, you're you're you've grown up <laughs> I'm not I was gonna say my age but I'm not going to um and me sort of putting into perspective how old they were when filming being like wow it's it's so weird that here we are in our adult lives still talking about something we did 30 years ago for two months in Utah and I'm I love it and it's I'll talk about Halloween five anytime. I love that. Well, and what I love, too, is that this kind of impact and this kind of longevity, it's, you know, any any kid who grows up watching movies and get like becoming interested in the creative arts and there are always those people who are like, uh, those are just movies. This is just blah, blah, blah. No, they're not. Look at the impact that it has mm-hmm. culturally. Look at the discussion. It, it it's, spurns. It's, it's funny. A, I was telling you before we went on the air that this is my husband's first time near that world he'd never been around the the horror the horror side of my life before <laughs> he didn't even see the movie until after we were married we've been there five years and like the week we got married i was like dude you got to see the movie now was this intentional you did it. you like keep him it away was, from it no or? he he's not a horror person okay. and i think he was just a little i don't know he just wasn't interested necessarily in sure. seeing it for whatever his reasons and there's also got to be something creepy about watching a movie of your adult husband as a child like there's got to be something there too it's not a home movie it's not like there's got to be something there but finally i was like dude you got to see the movie we just got to right you can't not have seen halloween five so he finally watched it and he was like that's not that scary i'm like no it's a late 80s number five in a series it's Right. Not scary. You're lucky it wasn't in space. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, so this is his first time around it. And he was like, wow, people really want to meet you. Not it sounds horrible. It sounds like he's putting me down, but he didn't understand the the um everything that surrounded that movie. And I, I said, think of it this way. It's like if we went to DragCon and you were freaking out over the queen that got voted off fourth in season two. And that's sort of where I think I am. I'm the drag queen that got voted off season two, fourth. <laughs> Which at least put it in perspective of like, all right, he can understand that there are people and there are millions of people in the world that somehow connected to that one person right. in that one season or that one movie. And that's who they care about. And that's sort of how I started revisiting my fans during this movie, during this con of like, okay, I can put it in perspective into my life, the people that I would care about. And see where I fit comparably. Yeah, I get that. And I think it's interesting um, when you talk about the relating to the character. Because I guess I never really thought about the fact that a lot of us were that little kid Mm trick-or-treating. I mean, hopefully our nights ended better. (laughs) But um, 
that those are the characters that are more entry points, especially deeper into the franchise. Because mm-hmm. by this point, there's a mythos that's established. There is just a whole you know, a lot attached to characters that we need new people to like enter that world. Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of people, you served as that. I try. <laughs> so let's take it back a little bit to the beginning. You mm-hmm. talked about how um, you were on Broadway mm-hmm. when you got this audition. But tell me a little bit about just your childhood in acting. Like, was that something from an early age you were just... We, we always say in my family, like, it was sort of predestined. There was no question that I was going to be a performer. I don't remember a time in my life when that wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, started, you know, following my sister to dance class and dance recitals when I was, like, three years old. So it's just always been there. And then when I was in first gr- kindergarten, I think, they let me be in the show at the local Jewish center. And I did that for a couple of years. Every year, my desire just grew more and more. When I was about 10 years old, uh, I said to my mother, I said, if you don't get me an agent, I will. And I don't know if she took that threat. Li- like, I don't know why she took that literally. Like, I would even know how, right. much less have the ability to do that. Like, I didn't even have a telephone. Like, how was I going to do that? But she took it seriously enough to take me to my first audition ever which she heard about on like the today show or something it was an open call for the new mickey mouse club the very first like this was before the show was even on the air this is the first round of auditions ever they were bringing back the mickey mouse club and they did what was basically a publicity stunt and they had open auditions at radio city music hall i was living in new jersey at the time and she took me and there were i think about five thousand kids i was number four because we got there really early and they called back 10 and I was one of them. And while we were at the callback, the receptionist sort of overheard my audition or overheard me practicing or whatever and said to my mom, you got to get this kid an agent, gave them a list of agents. And I said, I'm like, that's a really well-informed receptionist right? that she just had that list handy. <laughs> but she gave my mom the list. My mom called the first name on the list. Unbeknownst to us, it was the biggest child's agency in Manhattan called the list. They said, yeah, 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 send us a picture. And my mom said, but he might have a job. So I met with them that day. I signed with them that afternoon. I did not get the Mickey Mouse Club. My next audition was for Les Mis on Broadway. And less than two weeks later, I was on Broadway. Yeah, it's so, a lot to take in. Wow. It, it mean, happened really, really quickly. That's insane. I mean, because, I mean, as you know, that that's not it a normal happen. trajectory. Yeah. No. Uh, what I think is really fascinating about that is just sort of like putting it in, isn't this the, the secret? That's the secret, you know, the book, The Secret, where it's just <laughs> like, I want it. And so it happened. Uh, but I you, distinctly remember when I saw Les Mis about a year earlier, I said to my mom, I would give my right arm to be in that show. And she said, don't ever say that. Jewish mother, don't ever say that because then you'll get it and lose your arm. Like (laughs) you'll get in an accident the next day and your arm will be ripped off. So don't say that. So, yeah, it very much was the secret. It's it's bizarre how fast that all came to fruition. And what's wild, too, is, uh, you know, talk about being in sort of the right place at the right time. That's the original Broadway production of Les Mis, Mm -hmm. which is a legendary show. Yeah. And uh, just tell me about that. That's kind of got to be like a moment in time to be in. It was. It was, again, one of those things that I 
I didn't comprehend the enormity of it at the time. Mm -hmm. You know, six months earlier, I was playing Conrad Birdie at the Jewish Center. Like, it just, it really, that's not even, six months is even exaggerating. It was like three months earlier. It's, again, mind-blowingly bizarre. Um, But to me, I didn't know any differently. I just thought, this is what happens. I had two days of rehearsal. And then I rehearsed with some cast members. I watched the show every night for a week. And then I was performing on Broadway. And I, it, it just seemed normal. It helped, I think, very much that there were four other kids in the show. Right. So it helped that I wasn't alone. It was the year the show was just entering its second year when I joined. So it was pretty it wasn't really a well-oiled machine yet. But I think I was the second kid they put into the show. But it was, you know, the show was was smooth. It was going along. And having other kids there definitely made it easier right. and more normal. And um Yeah, it's still it's still like when I whenever I talk about it or tell the story, it still just blows my mind how that came to play. And I think, you know, for my my more horror oriented listeners who who don't have as strong of knowledge of musical theater, it's important to impress upon uh, you that Les Mis is not like it's not the music man. This is a, it's a very deep subject matter yes. about the French Revolution. It's like three hours long. It's a very lengthy show. Every right? person ends up dead. Yes. And so uh, which. OK, I'm going to have a brief aside. I got question. shot four times. So I have to ask, Mm -hmm. uh, here you are in a horror movie, a really bad night in Haddonfield, and you're also (laughs) in the French Revolution. Uh, What's just scarier? Just conceptually. Oh, Halloween, of course. (laughs) Okay, of Of course. course. Of course. There is is a a killer with no eyes coming at me. Come on, that's frightening. Not the collapse of a government. (laughs) (laughs) We're living that. True, true. Um... So, yeah, but that's it's just such a it's a powerful show. It's a heavy show. Uh, and it seems you just took to it right away. I did. There was something about the character that just when I first saw it just spoke to me and connected. You know, the character's a little kid who's just trying to help out in the revolution. And he's homeless and hungry and sees all the older kids getting to do things he doesn't get to do and just wants to help out and ends up getting shot in the head for it. <laughs> <laughs> a light show, a right. fun show. But Falsettos, which you were also in, uh, is slightly lighter than Les Mis. Only slightly, but yes. Yes. Uh, and tell me about uh, getting into that. That has to be after Halloween, I assume. That was after Halloween. It was a couple years later. Um, I was just starting high school, and I was maybe a month into high school when I got the audition for Falsettos. I had previously auditioned for the original cast and didn't get it. Mm-hmm. And now they were replacing the kid on Broadway and sending out the tour at the same time. So I knew they were looking for two guys. I went through the audition process and then uh, they narrowed it down to two of us that day and said, one of you will be on Broadway. One of you will go on tour. And I ended up being asked to go on tour. And so freshman year of high school, I packed up my bags and my mom and I went on tour. And uh, that was a very special show uh, just to give the audience a quick Overview, it's about, it's a seven-person musical about a man who leaves his wife for another man. It takes place in 1978. And so act one is sort of about how his ex-wife, his new lover, their son, and his psychiatrist all sort of work this out. And then in act two, we're preparing for the son's bar mitzvah as the father Marvin's lover 
develops what we, the audience, know is AIDS. And it's set in 81, the second act. And so the show sort of delves into what it means to be a man. Mm -hmm. So you have the little boy literally becoming a man via his bar mitzvah. You have all these adult men trying to figure out this new world. And it's a very powerful show. And uh, when we were out on tour on opening night, we're sitting in the van going to the theater and one of the women is just casually reading a magazine. She says, oh, so-and-so died of AIDS this week. And it was the first person I personally knew who had died of AIDS, as well as he was the first person in the industry who had really taken a who'd really taken me under his wing. And I knew that he was he was a casting director and he was looking out for me and really uh, pushing me. So I was devastated. I said to my mom, like, I don't want to do the show tonight. I can't go on. I can't do this. And she said, you have to. I mean, first off, I had no understudy. But she was like, you have to do the show. Like, what a horrible disservice to this person if you don't perform tonight. And that logic made sense to me. And then after the show, realizing what story I had told of this family dealing with the early onset of the AIDS crisis, I was like, oh, what a wonderful gift I was given that on this day of all days... I get to tell this story and maybe change some minds in the audience because this was also the early 90s. So this was still a time that, you know, AIDS was a topic we didn't really talk about. We we were just starting to, but it wasn't something people were as comfortable discussing as we are now. So I did the tour for a couple months and then I joined the Broadway cast and was there until it closed. So that was pretty much my entire freshman year of high school. How interesting, because we started the show talking about the power of catharsis and horror, but with the story you just told is is kind of, not kind of, it is real life horror. The AIDS crisis mm-hmm. was, was a real life horror that affected the, the LGBTQ community. But there's something really powerful, I think, and cathartic in this situation that you were able to kind of deal with the real life impact of the AIDS crisis through art mm-hmm. that was telling a story about the AIDS crisis. It was... In, in a, I don't want to say wonderful because that sounds weird to say about that experience, but it was it was a wonderful synchronicity of what was going on in my life and the specific and the world and the specific show at that time. And I'm not sure if I had been doing a different show or if I had not had a show that night, how I would have responded to this. He's still the only person that I was personally affected by that that passed away from AIDS, um, and I'm I'm. It sound, again, I hear myself saying this and it sounds so weird to say it this way, but I'm still I'm so grateful that I had that opportunity to tell that specific story that specific night. And it was opening night. So on top of that, it was the first time I was telling that story. Right. And all of that, I, I do think that this person was watching out for me from above once again and saying, like, I'm going to. I'm going to help you get through this. Well, I think I understand that. Grat- Not to make his death about me. That's horrible. But No, no. no. I, I think I understand the gratitude you're talking about, though, because, I, you know, we were talking about how art goes beyond us and just beyond the viewing experience mm-hmm. or the, the engagement as an audience member. Uh, you connected with it in a way that was both very personal but also beyond you mm-hmm. because it was connected to this wider thing that was happening. And... Um, Honestly, I think that's the highest compliment that you can give that piece. Mm-hmm. But it's also really the most we can ask of any piece of art, like mm-hmm. to serve as sort of like something that softens the blow of the real world, whether it's as a viewer or a performer. I mean, you got it in a very unique way because you were in the show. Mm-hmm. So, And as a performer, I'm always I, I my 
raison d'etre, for lack of a better word, is to affect an audience and to make them feel or think or not think or, you know, whatever. So to have an experience that at least selfishly for one night made me feel better through the performance and through the art, you know, I'll, I'll take that. I'll take if I'll, I'll take that on. I spend so much of my life trying to make other people feel good because that's what I think is the purpose of art right. that fine. I'll take one day that I was selfish about it. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I can understand. Um, so I, th- I think this is a good time to talk about something that's sort of the mission statement of the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we frequently talk about sort of the queer relationship with the art that we intake. Uh, and with a lot of prior guests, it's usually like, especially with regard to horror movies or just mm-hmm. film in general, there's sort of like kind of finding yourself as the other or the outsider in the art that you grew up watching and then, you know, eventually engaging it as a creator. Your story is a little different because you grew up on movie sets mm-hmm. and on stage. How was your your path coming into your own identity in that world like was it easier because the theater and tv is is more queer friendly or is it not i think it was a double-edged sword it was it was both i think because of my childhood i had somewhat of a stunted adolescence i didn't i mean i went to i went to public school but i missed a whole lot of school Mm -hmm. um and i was constantly being tutored and missing things i was also a, a, a spent a lot of time in my childhood and teen years in the recording studio singing so i i think i didn't in in which is a ah, pretty common theme in the gay people of my generation is the taking longer to sort of find yourself as a sexual being as a romantic being what have you so i felt that i had that not being in a traditional school setting but i don't think that's necessarily unique to anyone else in my high school class that was you know dealing with coming out it was at that time it was the early 90s it wasn't as easy to come out as it is now. So I don't think I had any really different of an experience than than my peers in that way. Mm-hmm. Yes, I was more a part of the LGBT community much younger. I mean, I performed when I was 10 years old in an AIDS benefit and was fully aware of what that meant. Right. Where, and I don't think other people did, but I don't know how much that really informed me. The only example I can think of, I've never told this story. All right. So I was doing I was doing falsettos and we were rehearsing and there was a part where I had to jump on someone's back. And I remember thinking, oh, he's gay. That's weird. Jumping on his back. And I remember also distinctly thinking as like less than a second later, I wouldn't think that if it was a woman. Like I wouldn't think this is weird if it was a woman. Right. And I remember distinctly having that moment of like get out of your head that's you're being ridiculous and i don't think other people maybe have that realization as young as i did and that was just more you probably early on coming to terms or not yet yeah i mean i was i was 14 and i think it was just a it's it that moment obviously it meant something it stuck with me that moment i remember as being like just a turning point in my relationship to other human beings if right. you know yeah it was specifically a, a gay thing but it was it was a moment of 
of sort of seeing the world a little differently. And it happened to have included a gay man. But I think that sort of started my path in a way other people may have gotten that realization later. Gotcha. So we've been talking a little bit about your work in the world of musical theater. Mm -hmm. We talked about your work in the world of horror and uh, longtime listeners of the show. And I'm taking you back like 50 episodes now uh, might recall when I had uh, the Enton twins on directors of geography club all the way back in episode two, they shared with me that they always viewed that there was a kinship between the world of theater and horror. And we talked a bit about that, but now I finally have someone who's worked in both. <laughs> so I'm wondering, do you think that there is sort of like a, a sisterhood behi- between that world of heightened sensibility? I've or? never thought of that, but but I, it makes perfect sense that there would be because they're both part of the joy of theater as an audience member or a, a performer is anything can happen. You know, you could be watching a show and suddenly someone forgets their lines and that changes the energy of the room for everyone. Right. And I think that's sort of on a smaller scale, a similar thrill that we get from horror of anything. Anyone can jump out from behind that window. Anyone can can startle you in a moment. And that adrenaline rush, that's actually my favorite part of a horror movie when you don't know what's going to happen behind, you know, what's going to pop out from behind that door. Mm-hmm. That moment, that, that two-second moment is the most exciting thing I think we can feel in life. And I think we get that same thrill in the theater. Yeah, I guess it's I guess it's a measure of audience engagement, right? Mm-hmm. Because the the one joy I think, well not the one joy, there are many joys, but like a great joy of being on stage is like that power you get from the audience when you're when they're there. And I do think there's something unique in a horror movie that you feel that energy in an, in an audience watching a horror film as well. It's a different kind of energy, but like it's more pronounced. But I think that that's that's the nail on the head. It's in my opinion, obviously, theater is a group activity. It's a shared experience. Right. And I think a lot of people feel that way about horror, too. No one really watches a horror movie. I don't want to say alone because you do watch it alone. And that is a very specific experience. Yes. But if you no one really watches horror movies, one or two people, you go to see it in the theaters so that you have that shared experience you have that jolt when something happens that you can feel reverberate throughout the audience and i think i've never it's never occurred to me before that that's exactly why you go to the theater is for that shared experience and i think that carries over into horror as well i think that makes perfect sense it's because you know a lot of horror movies are referred to by critics and people who study the genre as as cult films they have that cult following Mm -hmm. but what that really means here is is communal the idea that we all share that experience, you know, I mean, and it, it, it's unique, I think, to genre in, in cinema because, uh, yes, something like Sophie's Choice is an amazing film, but we don't really think of, it's not a cult film. Right. It's not a communal movie. Whereas something like Rocky Horror, we just like, yes, we're going to go and celebrate with everybody. Have you tried to watch Rocky Horror alone? <laughs> it's not the same experience at all. It definitely. Uh, it's a movie that requires some rowdiness. It yeah. really does. And I think horror has that too. You want to feel the release of the tension when you don't know who's coming from behind that door. You have that tension build up and the release is is hearing the entire audience sort of react to it. Right. And I think that's something that you're saying is unique to the horror experience. And I love that. It never occurred to me to, to think of it that way before. 
well, I mean, we, we like to inspire new <laughs> trains of thought here on Dead for Filth. Uh, so I was looking at your resume, and I have uh, a grand affinity for a specific magical teacher. Uh, so I would like to ask you a little bit about uh, the magic school bus. So I sing the theme song to Magic School Bus. I'm one of the background singers for Little Richard. So I'm technically on every episode. That's amazing. Um, and when they just announced they were redoing it, I was trying to figure out who, trying to find out who was doing the new theme song or if they were just going to use the old one. And then they announced that Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote the new theme song, but they announced it the day that they released the new theme song. So I couldn't even like go after him and be like, you should use the same singers again. <laughs> But so, yeah, I have that little bit of history being in in part of the Magic School Bus. And I met Lily Tomlin, like, at a bar four years ago. And somehow it came up and I was like, I'm on Magic School Bus and so are you. And I don't think she was as interested in pursuing this conversation as I was. Um, I just have a great affinity for Miss Frizzle due to the fact that, like, that's that's the thin line between, like, fantasy and horror. Because, Mm -hmm. like... You just skew that teacher like a degree to the right and that whole notion. She's taking those kids like inside a pancreas. Yeah. There can't be a permission slip big enough for that. (laughs) Nightmare fuel. (laughs) Uh, No, I love that. I saw that and I was like, I have to ask him. Uh, And you have a number of of credits on films where you are in choirs and things. Yeah, I do. I uh, especially in the 90s, I was the number one child male studio singer in Manhattan. So I was on virtually every commercial you ever heard and a lot of movies they would bring me in to do for example the movie Life with Mikey. Mm-hmm. There's a scene where you see an, a little bit of an episode of the TV show Life with Mikey. So they brought me in to sing the theme song. Things like that. Um, in Home Alone 2 I um, am the voice of the kid who sings a solo in the opening choir. Wait, okay. So I knew Home Alone 2, but like this occurrence just hit me while I'm sitting here. I think you're the first guest that I can say was in a movie. Do you know what I'm going to say? I know exactly where you're going. (laughs) With Donald Trump. Yep. And let (laughs) me tell you something. The movie was not shown last year. No? Uh, Most of the networks would not show it because of Donald Trump. And I was like, that's my residuals, Donald. (laughs) (laughs) You want to keep money in America? Oh, man. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you for bringing that. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I never met him. I was never on set. I was in a recording studio. I'll just leave leave it at that. I mean, clearly not a friend of the show. So we're, <laughs> we're, I think we're, this is a safe space. Uh, no, that's amazing. So you, you did a lot of uh, those kind of gigs. Is there a, a role or part or uh, something that you did that no one ever asks you about that is special to you? You're probably the first one to bring up Magic School Bus. Really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, no, I mean, the, I, I've had, a, I've been very fortunate in my career with the work I've done. I don't know if it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that it's like the Les Mis and the Halloween or the, and the falsettos are the ones I love talking about the most because that's what I talk about the most. Mm-hmm. But I mean, those are my three big credits that I'm, I'm most proud of. I'm, I'm really proud of the Broadway work, but also the the film work. And, you know, like I said earlier, being a part of a franchise that is so beloved and so big is something something no one can ever take from me. You know, I was talking to a, a friend of mine who is my age, but at the time did a, a show on Broadway when she was a kid and left the business pretty soon after. 
and people were like, why? But And she said, I achieved a life goal. And just because I achieved it at age 11 doesn't make it any less special. Right. And I'm like, no one can ever take. And she said, no one can ever take that from her. And no one can ever take from me that I starred in a major motion picture. I starred on Broadway. That's that's always going to be there. So I will always be happy to talk about it because it's major. Right. And just because it happened as a child doesn't make it any less important in my life trajectory and you're still doing a lot of stage performance right i'm trying so that that begs the question what are you up to now what are you working on um i have a couple irons in the fire that i can't really talk about um i do work at knott's berry farm i'm in the wild west stunt show yeah i've become a stunt man so i'm there and a couple other things that are that are unspeakable at this time um, and just auditioning and living the life of a working actor in Los Angeles and all that that entails. Well, this would be around the portion of the show that I would ask you, because uh, we like to ask every guest since this this show uh, centers around you know engagement with art. Have mm-hmm. you seen anything recently that you really like that inspires you? Like, what are you watching right now? Oh, I was not prepared for that question. Um, (laughs) I'm surprised how often that's the question that trip people up. I will ask you how people can find you later because I had a guest. I have an answer to that. A couple couple guests ago, they were like, "What's that mean?" I'm like, "We have a social media these days." (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm watching all the normal things that everyone in the world is watching. Yes, I still watch my beloved Grey's Anatomy. It is season 15, and every Thursday night, it's the only show I even watch live. I don't even watch it later on Hulu. I sit through commercials for that show. Um, you know, I'm a big. I'll I'll watch anything. I know it sounds silly, but like I'll a good story is a good story, and I'm totally blanking on anything going on in the world right now. That's that's uh, moving me in the entertainment industry because I was sprung with that question. But I, you know, I I watch a lot of TV try and see as many movies as I can, go to the theater as often as I can? Well, um, I will, since you mentioned Grey's Anatomy, and I'll also use this into a, a bridge into the next question. Uh, I am delighted. I, I notoriously rarely share what my Halloween costume is before the day, but because you brought up Grey's Anatomy, I uh, got a lab coat from the wardrobe department at Grey's Anatomy to use for my costume this year. And part of me is like kind of secretly overjoyed that I get, it's real. Yeah, I it's get a little uh, Shonda in my my October thirty. That's all we need. That's all we need in life. A little bit of Shonda Rhimes. So speaking of Halloween, one of the things the day of, uh, one of the things I like to ask guests when I have them on in the month of October, uh, what are your Halloween traditions? What do you like to do for the holiday? What does someone who was in the Halloween franchise like to do for Halloween? Um. You know, I personally come from the school of once you're old enough to buy your own baby Snickers, Halloween trick or treating kind of loses its own its, its allure. <laughs> so I've I've become an old fart, and I've moved to the other side of the equation. That I love just staying home, maybe put on a scary movie, make some popcorn, and wait for the trick or treaters. And I, I kind of love being on that side of it now, that getting to experience Halloween through seeing what the kids today are, what the you know fun costumes are and how creative kids are. And I love just staying home and, and getting to experience that side of it, which I never as a kid did. I went out trick-or-treating all the time. Until the people stopped coming to my house. My mother's going to kill me for telling this story, but it's true and I love it. One year at Halloween, we ran out of candy. Oh, no. 
So my mother, being the resourceful woman that she is, started giving out cans of soup. <laughs> oh, well, you know what? I would be thrilled to get a can of soup for Halloween. You want a can <laughs> of like creamy mushroom soup for Halloween? Yeah, I mean. So we rarely got trick-or-treaters after that. But I was like, Mom, at least like steal my candy right. and buy more later. Pencils, nickels, anything. Hey. Nope, cans of soup from the Landman household. Look. As someone who comes from an old world Italian family, if anyone gives you something hearty to eat, like you just take it. Like that's where I'm. At. Like I'm all for it. Now I'll go out and be like, "Can I have some soup? Do you have any tea bags? Anything?" Yeah. If your mom's giving out soup this year, I'm trick or treating it. I'm giving. Out, I'm giving out K cups for my curing. That's what all the kids are getting. Oh my. Okay. So I think before we head off into the night, I have a question that. Um, I think is is very relevant, obviously, to the season and to your involvement uh, mm-hmm. in the franchise. And with the, with the new Halloween movie coming out, what they are doing is exploring what happened to the character of Laurie 40 years down the mm-hmm. line. So I'd like to know, to you, what do you think your character is doing now? I was just asked this over the weekend, and... Uh, on a panel and I think when you watch Halloween 5 objectively Billy really like yeah he has a car chase he gets run over by a car but like he really doesn't have that much connection to like he doesn't really witness anything all that traumatic so in my mind he goes off to the hospital he gets better he probably has some psychological damage sure but I, but I don't think as much as say you know Jamie um I like to think he grew up and became a speech pathologist. So I think he's living there in the world in his, you know, 30s and teaching kids with speech disorders. That's my dream for him. That he's well adjusted. I mean, Halloween's probably a rough day for him. He probably like doesn't leave his house. Right. But beyond that, I think he's he's fairly well adjusted from everything and is using that experience to, you know, actively help others. Did he leave Haddonfield? I would. Yeah, well, I mean. That's the one thing I don't get about the Halloween franchise. It's the one thing. Why are people in Haddonfield? Leave. Well, I felt that way about all slasher franchises. Because yeah. they're all small town America, which I understand is the, the appeal. The, it connects to audiences across the board. But, like, so you live in Springwood, which is in the Elm Street movies, where you are, well, first off. if Don't you, live on Elm Street. Don't live on Elm Street. Or don't live in Haddonfield. Or if you are a survivor of Michael Myers. This is my one big question. It's like. Go somewhere else. Well, it's interesting. I was reading, I think it was in Entertainment Weekly, an interview with Jamie Lee. And they talked about how the new movie deals with trauma and all that. And she said, when they pitched it to her, they said, what happened to Lori on November 1st? Right. Does she just go back to school? Like, how does one go on with their life after after what she experienced? And that's sort of what thematically fit the movie. So in that sense, I understand. Like, she's right. not leaving. She's staying. She's getting her. She's in a way, and maybe this applies to other characters that maybe had a little more trauma than Billy. Um, you know, you you sometimes have to stay to heal to sort of reclaim right. Haddonfield. Like, to reclaim your life, you can't run away. And I think that's one way to look at it, that if you run away, that's only going to make it worse. I, I suppose there's that's true. I'm still leaving. Don't get me wrong. I'm, like, out of Haddonfield on November 1st if this is my life. And I'm certainly not celebrating. Why does... There is the thing in the trailer, again, for the new one, where she's like, why are you out on Halloween? Like, go home. Right. We're carving a pumpkin. <laughs> yeah. Don't. Don't use a knife. Just don't do anything. Just one day of the year. You can have candy tomorrow. 
I have a neighbor who I think objectively truly uh, does not care for Halloween. And this is true. They've done this every year since I've lived in the place I'm at. Uh, they decorate for Christmas on October 1st. Do and it. I'm just like, I, re- I used to be real annoyed because I'm a Halloween person, but I'm like, you know what? You live your truth. Maybe something happened and you don't like Halloween. You just like, you th- hang up those icicle lights and you, you fucking live. Like Maybe that. their real name is Strode. Yeah. Oh my God. I've got a Strode in my building. That sounds dirty. <laughs> <laughs> it does kind of sound dirty. Uh, so <laughs> now the question, where can people find you? You can find me, um... Just Instagram, Twitter at Jeffrey Landman, Instagram at the Jeffrey Landman show. I'm sure if you just put in my name, it will pop up. So follow me. Excellent. Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining us. My today. pleasure. Listeners, please, if you have not yet or you need something to revisit, watch Halloween 5. Also, check out, if you can, recordings of this marvelous man singing. Uh, I recommend the theme from the Magic School Bus. It's really good. <laughs> This has been Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti. Yours always in glam and gore. Good night and good luck. Good night.